uh, as I said, I'm actually quite in favor of economic growth. And you probably know that I had debates there with people for, for uh, big growers. I, uh, I will not going to repeat them all now, but I believe that economic growth is absolutely indispensable for the improvement uh, in not only way of life of people, but actually uh, allowing people opportunities to uh, basically uh, self-realize. You know, without economic growth and without, yeah. without income and without wealth, you really cannot self-realize mm -hmm. because you're so much constrained in your daily activity. You just go, it's practically survival. From day yeah. to day, you have to fight to survive. And what income gives us is a possibility to go a little bit beyond that and really realize our human potential. Hello everyone, welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is Alex Hochuli here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. We've also got Philip Cunliffe uh, in London and uh, George Hoare is away this week. Um, but in his place, uh, very delighted to announce that we have uh, Branko Milanovic, who will be speaking to his professor at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Branko is a renowned Serbian-American economist whose area of expertise is inequality and who's known for his contributions to public debate on the question of inequality, as well as many other areas. He's widely published on questions of political economy, including most recently Capitalism Alone, uh, which we will be discussing as we go through, as well as talking a little bit towards the end about Branko's new work, which we're very eager to hear about. Uh, this is something which I've been wanting to have, a discussion we've been wanting to have for a very long time. So we're delighted to have you, Branko. Hello. Well, thank you very much, Alex. Thank you very much, Philip. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yes, so excellent. before we, yeah, welcome to the show, Branko. And before we talk about your most recent mm -hmm. work, we wanted to discuss your background a little. Um, and by way of introduction, I don't know if you came across this blog, but I thought I would put it to you because I was quite struck by it. So a Serbian blog called Sjenacic, he mentioned that in Cold War era Yugoslavia, where you were... Um, raised and educated, it was perched in a unique position between East and West, and this mm -hmm. generated a very distinctive type of public figure and intellectual, which only really a socialist European country that wasn't part of either bloc could really produce. And in this blog post, he mentioned um, Garcevich, that is, he mentioned yourself, as well as figures such as the artist Marina Abramovich, and the Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek as these kind of um, iconoclastic and intellectually independent figures that could only have come out of a country like the ex-Yugoslavia. So I wanted to I wanted to start by asking how important do you think your Yugoslav origins are to your outlook and work, um, if at all. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> great actually to start with that question. It's like I like it very much. Uh, let me say I read actually what Sergeant wrote, and I even had thoughts of the very similar kind before. But one has to be a little bit careful because uh, it, it is a little bit self-serving to claim that you had a unique opportunity that other people did not. However, I, I think there is some truth to that. I think that there is some truth because um, Yugoslavia, as you said, was out of the blocks, was non-aligned. Uh, and had a some fairly critical view about, about the Soviet Union and Stalinism, actually anti-Stalinist country. Well, I mean, anti-Stalinist ideology was inbuilt, inbuilt into the Communist Party's uh, approach. 
because of course they claimed with self-management, labor management, that they were very different uh, than, uh, than the Soviet type of uh, socialism. On the other hand, there was a critical attitude towards the rest. Uh, and I noticed that difference, especially with people of my age, because you know my, many younger people obviously don't have that background because the situation changed in the last 30 years. But with people of my age, I do notice that, especially when I look at other East European of my age, who are sort of a knee-jerk anti-Soviet and then anti-Russian today, and very often unquestionably admiring the West. And on the other hand, also some people from you know, Western Europe or maybe the United States who actually agree with them, but also it may be without knowing much about the past or maybe even actually many people have no idea even what the non-alignment was. So I would agree, actually, I would say, I would generally tend to agree, but I have to be a little bit careful because it does sound a little bit like a self-serving. Oh, no, fair enough. Um, and so you ended up working for the World Bank, including in Eastern Europe and um, becoming an American citizen. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about how these changes affected your career and also your outlook. Um, I came to the World Bank in the early 80s, and I came in a most uh, sort of prosaic way, in the sense just applying to, to work. Uh, you know, they had uh, advertisements. I, I remember that advertisement. Actually, my mother pointed this out to me. Yeah, they they had advertisements in um, in the Economist, and uh, I think actually I was again privileged because of my background, because the competition to get into the World Bank was then very tough, and it's still extremely tough. As you know, it's a job that is relatively prestigious and is quite well paid, and you travel to many countries and. Uh, but they had very few people from Eastern Europe because in those days, only a couple of countries were, well, actually four countries, Yugoslavia, to the extent that it is Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, Romania, and Hungary were members. And you could not actually get a job unless your country was a member. So obviously the supply from Eastern Europe was very weak. And in Romania, actually, you could not even apply from Romania, as you know, it was a dictatorship at that time. Uh, so they were quite keen to have some people. And I think in that sense, the background that was we discussed in the first question was actually helpful. Uh, when I came to the World Bank, then I worked, uh, or the, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I just want to say from the 1990s, I was in the 1990, exactly. I was in the research department working on income inequality and poverty, essentially in Eastern Europe. And the reason was because my dissertation, and that's an important point, my dissertation in Belgrade in 1987 was on income inequality in Yugoslavia using microdata, which was very unusual in those days. So that was the background, which then led me, of course, to work on, on Eastern Europe. So you've talked about, um, on, in both in blogs and on social media, about your experience in Eastern Europe working for the World Bank in the 1990s, and it's something I want to come back to in a bit. Um, but also I wanted to pick up a theme uh, which you've mentioned separately because it's connected to one of our abiding interests on, on this podcast, which is characterization of the end of history. And so um, one of the claims that we've made, at least on the podcast, is that that era that was characterized by this kind of um, Fukuyamist liberal complacency over the last 30 years, that era is coming to an end now. Um, and I recall that once on Twitter, you mentioned that a relative living in Belgrade and born in the early 20th century 
would have lived through so many changes of regime and national citizenship, you know, monarchy, multinational state, the um, the Quisling regime and the war, to communism, to the post-Cold War situation. And you said that no one raised in such a context could imagine that history had ever ended. So I was wondering whether you think, whether you would characterize the end of history as a kind of a luxury theory that no one outside of the West would kind of meaningfully subscribe to. I agree with you. You know, I was uh, I was very doubtful when it actually started. You know, with Fukuyama. I, I, by the way, I have to say that his later work, especially the work, uh, the the, the two volume book on uh, the origin of political order, I found it actually excellent. Uh, but the this the end of history. I understand that the ideological logic, and actually, I think it's very important to uh, distinguish between sort of Hegelian approach. And to some extent, Marxist approach as well, because Marx also sees the end of history in communism and doesn't see it the way that Fukuyama sees it, but history kind of ends. Although, of course, as you know, in Marx, he says the real history would only start then when you have a classless society. Uh, so I understand that logic, but of course it was simplified, and I think Fukuyama contributed himself to this simplification, where it was seen that essentially we have found an optimal a socioeconomic system, which would replace all the other systems. So there is no, you know, Chinese history, no, there is no Islam, there is no Russian history, Euro-Asianism that we now see. There is absolutely nothing. It's only that one system that is now going to rule from now on forever. And I found that very simplistic, as you said, and uh, I was not against it, but I just found that uh, view to be very ahistorical. And uh, I think that we, to some extent, unfortunately, because of the events in Ukraine, which are absolutely awful, but we definitely do see uh, that that approach was uh, not valid. And uh, of course, especially also the second reason is that uh, China is uh, certainly not subscribing to this view of the world either. I would, I mean, I would agree with everything that you said there. Moving more now into uh, kind of one of the more substantive, um, one of the more the more substantive claims that you've engaged with, one of and one of the core claims, as I understand it, particularly coming from your most recent book, Pub, uh, Capitalism Alone, and where you build on the work of Bill Warren, is your claim that in yeah. world historic terms, essentially communism was an engine of economic convergence. Um, that it allowed developing countries to haul themselves into the industrial age and overthrow imperialist oppression. And so I suppose I was wondering how you give some examples in the book mentioning like Angola, Vietnam and China. Um, but I was wondering how much that story, if you remove China from that story mm -hmm. about communism as an engine of economic convergence, whether, whether how whether or not the thesis still stands, or if it's essentially yeah. a kind of a thesis about China more than it is about um, the role that communism has played historically in the 20th century. So I was wondering if you could maybe just yeah. elaborate a bit on the claim in general and how important China is to the thesis as a whole. 
Well, Philip, it's, it's a great question, you know, uh, to be maybe flippant, I could say, well, if you eliminated Marx or any sort of even liberal thinkers, the UK, uh, uh, how valid is the story of uh, industrialization, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, that, but that's a flippant, uh, you know, answer. But I agree with you, obviously China plays a tremendously important role. And uh, China not only plays the tremendously important role because it's a big country, it plays tremendously important role because to some extent my thinking was really patterned after what happened in China. And when I mentioned that the role of communist parties in countries that were colonized was twofold. One was to get rid of political domination that was exercised over them. And secondly, to get rid of the feudal or quasi-feudal institutions. This is like exactly what Mao was saying when he said we have two big mountains to climb. And these are these two mountains. So it is indeed that China played really significant role, both ideologically and in terms of size, and possibly in terms of what it can bring uh, to the world in the future. Uh, but I uh, do think that actually the story is not very, for Vietnam, obviously it's fairly similar, but you can also argue that countries like Algeria, Angola, Ethiopia, Ethiopia was not really, as you know, colonized except towards the end by, 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 by Italy. But I, I would say that actually it does hold, and even India. Now, I mentioned in a book, you know, I say this is not only communist parties, it's also left-wing movements. And India left-wing movement was significant. And had it not been, then going back to the Russian Revolution, had it not been for Lenin's 1920 decision and M. N. Roy in India to basically link the two struggles, we probably would have had a much slower decolonization that we had. So uh, to, to summarize, I think that you're right to raise the issue of China and whether the story is largely driven by China, which I agree with. But I think there are also other examples. And finally, let me just say that we know that from the empirical work, for example, that was done, that if you look at communist countries, where now include Yugoslavia as well, and Vietnam and China and uh, Tajikistan and everybody, that the growth rate and the relative success of communism was greater in the less developed parts, which yeah. is interesting. Uh, because these were the parts that actually benefited from that kind of a more um, uh, centralized approach that led to the resource accumulation. Whereas Czech Republic and Slovakia did not really benefit very much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think this point, this, uh, I mean, theory or attempt to understand what the real historic contribution of communism was, is an incredibly important one. And since I first encountered that idea, I think, in probably some sort of left communist writings, um, and then you develop it really interestingly in Capitalism Alone, I constantly return back to the idea, um, because I think it's still a, a, somehow there's still a knot to be untangled there. Um, and I think you indicate that to a certain okay. extent by, by uh, saying, well, maybe it is more of a China story. But I think, um, you know, it, it would certainly be a contribution that, um, you know, communist regimes made in Eastern Europe as well, in terms of modernizing uh, those societies. Um, and I, I wondered if what would be the contribution that is being made or that you see being made by what you call political capitalism, you know, with again, China being the sort of quintessential regime, right. which follows on from keeping some of the state forms of uh, communist regimes, but obviously um, having a much more private market economy. 
Yeah, Alex, this is actually a great question. Let me sort of backtrack a little bit on the on the this global historical role of communism. Uh, the story is actually being picked up also in countries like Poland that also needed to be modernized. And although Poland was not a success case of communism, clearly, and there was a very strong resistance to communism because of its association with the Soviet Union and Russia. But there was certainly an element of significant modernization and breaking of, there were no feudal institutions, but certainly institutions which were retarding economic growth, even in country like Poland. Now, the, the general question that actually that I posed and whether people agree with me or not, it maybe does not even matter. But the general question is following. What was the global political or economic role of communism? And uh, we just tend to general, oftentimes to ignore it by basically saying it was some kind of a uh, dead-end street. We don't discuss it. But, you know, that that's not a very good explanation because, after all, one-third of mankind live for almost 100 years under that system. So we have to have some explanation what brought the system up, mm. what the system did. Even I'm not using the word contribute, but just did. So that's the, I think, important part. On, on the political uh, capitalism, this is the term, as you know, that I introduced, that I use, that comes from Max Weber. I could have used also state capitalism. I'm not against that term either. I like political because it's, it seems to me more precise because it's really the politics that, that matter. And uh, what, what could be the, well, that, that we really now go to the, sort of systemic debate between the US and China. Of course, the, the system of political capitalism, again, as, as exemplified by China, as I say, it's a quintessential uh, uh, example, uh, brings a much greater role of the state, much greater concern on economic growth and ability to deliver that. And I would li like to link, and that's where I stopped, I was speaking too long, but I would like to link that with uh, the recent review of a book that was on uh, uh, Xi Jinping's sayings. What is interesting in that book is that the, the emphasis is on governance, is on the delivery of results. The book never mentioned how you become the boss. The book never mentioned how is the, the process of selection. So unlike in the West, where we actually focus on the process, the, uh, uh, Xi Jinping in that book talks only about the results. And I think that's actually, uh, to some extent, is the, the important difference between the two systems. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to uh, think on that a little bit more because I think that is a, that's an interesting observation. Um, I did want to take the opportunity, and by the way, you know, feel free to, to, to speak at length if you wish as well. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask about South America, actually, because that and try to fit it into this story about the end of history, perhaps never really happening for large parts of the world. And it often feels like, and it's often said that in South America feels like at least the Cold War never really ended, um, at least that the assault from the elite on kind of both living standards and the levels of violence and everything make it feel rather like uh, still, during the, still during the Cold War. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, maybe even asking counterfactually what would have been the effect should a maybe left-wing, you know, left-wing nationalist regimes in large countries in South America actually have held power over a period, um, whether that would have, in your view, and following this sort of theory, accelerated development to a certain degree to put them in a better situation than they are now, 
Of course, we know very well why that didn't happen because most of those regimes were deposed often, um, you know, in, in, with with a with a gun, you know, by the U.S. So I think, yeah, I, I do actually believe that uh, if uh, the left wing regimes had been uh, more stable and had been able to maintain themselves in power longer in uh, less developed parts of South America, that would have been actually put the, those countries in a better position. Now, the counter argument to that is the situation with Cuba that actually in many respects replicates the, the, exam, I mean, of the examples of Vietnam or China and so mm. forth. However, you know, geopolitical conditions also have to be taken into account. Cuba is of course, uh, I mean, put under an enormous pressure by its proximity to the United States, and the fact that, of course, there are lots of population of Cuban origin and Cuban citizenship who live in the United States, and that the links have been severed, as you know. Uh, when I recently wrote about the sanctions on Russia, and I said they would last for another 50 years, I just had in mind Cuban sanctions that have been now in, in, in place for more than 60 years. So there is a geopolitical element, and um, whether that kind of option was feasible to countries like Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, uh, we have seen in some of them actually left-wing uh, uh, you know, systems uh, being relatively successful. And I have in mind really Bolivia, for example, in this, mm. in this case. Uh, for bigger countries and more developed countries like Brazil, that, that's of course, it's a, it's a different issue and whether you know, Brazil obviously had its own dynamic and so did Argentina and Uruguay. Mm. But I think that actually, let me just say that I think that Latin America is not sufficiently discussed in my book. And I agree with that. That is already, some people have made that comment. You know, I had quite a lot of people from Brazil participate in several discussions that they had uh, on, on capitalism alone. And it was translated in Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese, very quickly after the publication here. And it is true that actually Latin America is not, maybe because I don't know enough, or it's just, it is, Latin America has, a, I think, a dynamic of its own. So it is not very easy to put that, that dynamic into this kind of a, a broader, maybe simplified versions, uh, where, where, which I use, where you have China and the United States as the two paragons, and then Latin America somehow gets lost or, or you mm -hmm. know, falls yeah. between the cracks. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah, so I wanted to um, to talk a bit about your um, insights and experience of the transition period, in particular in Eastern Europe in the early 1990s, and also to ask how it fits with the um, with the broader thesis about the role played by communism, um, because I suppose I mean given the given the terrible kind of costs of shock therapy, demographic, economic, and the social dislocation, as well as obviously the um, and the political upheaval um, in Yugoslavia, but also in um, some of the peripheral areas of the former Soviet Union. I wonder how how that these, you know, well, if you could, you know, be, we'd be interested to hear about your kind of personal insights into having um, been, you know, so kind of closely um, observing that process, but also how it sits with the thesis, because, if the claim is that communism was kind of simply bringing, you know, that the world historic role of communism was to bring these countries up to, up to the level of um, being, 
integrated into a global capitalist economy, um, wouldn't the process, wouldn't we have expected the process to be of that integration to be smoother rather than as um, mm -hmm. as dislocating and disruptive as it was? Yes, I think that, the, I mean, that this question really can be quite well linked to the previous question about Fukuyama and my view of Fukuyama and the end of history. You know, again, being from Yugoslavia, which went, as you know, into a civil war, breakup of the countries, uh, genocide, uh, ethnic cleansing, you name it. And not only, I was just struck by the view which regarded these revolutions as revolutions of liberalism and multiculturalism. And what you observe, which was actually even obvious to a blind person, was that, that the breakup of the countries was according to the ethnic and religious lines. And wherever there was a conflict, it was a conflict driven by a, a sort of ethnocentric or nationalist ideology. I recently wrote that actually there were 12 overall conflicts in the former Soviet Union and former Yugoslavia. 11 of them were conflicts about borders. The only conflict that was not was a civil war in Tajikistan. So when you see that fact that actually basically one ethnic group is attacking the other and they're fighting about the border and you are reading the articles that they say that actually these countries have now become liberal and multicultural, <laughs> you just say, well, this makes no sense. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I actually argue that these revolutions were revolutions of self-determination and nationalism. And when you actually say that these revolutions were revolutions of nationalism, people, of course, react negatively because they have been fed a story of liberalism, which really doesn't fit. And even when you look at countries that have done very well, like Poland and the Baltic countries and the others, what is in the background of their success is really basically nationalism. And that's something that people really have a very hard time accepting, uh, but it is really being shown even in the resistance of East European countries to accept, for example, refugees from the rest of the world. Well, you remember that the European Union was dividing how many yeah. refugees from different countries like Syria would be accepted. East European countries all were against that. So how does this fit with the story of liberalism and multiculturalism? It doesn't fit at all. And that was actually my, uh, uh, how should I say, disagreement from the very start. And it was further exacerbated, obviously, not only by what happened in the, in, in the former Yugoslavia, but also when I worked for the World Bank, what I saw in Russia in the 1990s, because it was a disaster. But if I come back to Washington and read the press here, the press is like saying, well, things are really phenomenal. And you just go there, and I actually didn't travel much to Russia. It was just basically in the big cities like Moscow. And it was a disaster in the 1990s. So, I mean, just to be a little bit provocative, I guess, or to try to maybe rescue, and not that I want to rescue the end of history thesis, but to try to somehow integrate these. Obviously, they weren't revolutions for multiculturalism or the kind of conception of liberalism, particularly kind of pluralistic liberalism that uh, advocates of, you know, the American, of the victorious American empire held. But in a certain regard, the, the sort of nationalism was the, the liberalism, but of course, of an earlier age of the mid 19th century of the early 19th century. And I wonder if that isn't itself, perhaps in some way, a facet of, uh, of the sort of yeah, a world of, uh, of, of a pensée unique, of liberalism without challengers, that the only recourse you have um, at, in 
pursuit of development or in pursuit of some alternative is precisely the national one um, because the, the kind of socialist dream wasn't there. I, I agree with that actually. And these revolutions are somewhat similar, actually quite similar to the revolutions of 1848 because they were, you have the democratic element or liberal element, if you want to call it like that, and nationalist element that are combined fused and it's difficult to tell which one is more important. In my opinion, for the reasons that I mentioned before, I think that the nationalist element was predominant, especially in countries that felt to have been under some kind of Russian control. So the nationalist element was very strong. But when you have that agreement among the majority of people, are you going to, to advertise your revolution by saying it be really a revolution and nationalism? Or are you going to advertise it as the Western consultants and uh, Fukuyama and others tell you, that's the, the, uh, the uh, revolution of liberalism and democracy. It's very difficult to disentangle the two components, the liberal part and the nationalist part. But there is an incentive always to, to advertise the, the liberal or democratic part because it is more general. It appeals to everybody in the world because you're saying that you're obviously in favor of democracy, not simply that you're in favor of relatively constrained uh, ideology, which is by definition nationalism. So I think that there was a tendency to oversell these revolutions as revolutions of democracy slash liberalism. And I'm not disputing that, of course, there was not a significant element of that, but it's relatively easy to have the significant element of that when you have a general agreement that you want to be to, to actually be free from foreign control. Yeah. And uh, just to pick up on the point about transition, so how does the how does the account of transition or your understanding of transition, how does that fit with the world with the claim with the claim you make about the world historic role that communism has played as a mechanism of convergence because like i say shouldn't i mean shouldn't if it was yeah. convergence shouldn't the process have been smoother of integrating these um countries into the new global market uh well philip let me just sort of make this precision the 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 entire argument in chapter three of capitalism alone is built on the countries that were colonized by obviously foreign forces and that use communism as a way to affect these two revolutions that I spoke about before. So they actually do not fit East European case. And that's why if you look at the book, I actually think yeah. that the greatest world historical event in the 20th century was not the Russian revolution, was actually the Chinese revolution. Uh, we, and you really have very few mentions, except that actually I think that 1920 Congress, as I mentioned before, was quite important in the Russian revolutions. But the, ironically, in my interpretation of history, the Russian revolution was important because it enabled the rise of China. I mean, to, to simplify the story. So yeah. to go, go, back to your, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I won't forget. What the, yeah, go ahead. Well, I mean, so that's it's it's useful to have that clarification. I suppose it's this that concerns me, I suppose, from the viewpoint of while I, you know, I like the and I agree in broad measure with the claim about the world historic role that communism has played um, in terms of economic convergence. It does leave me uneasy that the um, Russian Revolution, given its kind of, you know, its uh, significance to, you know, the USSR in the Cold War, 
the USSR in the Second World War, the history of Eastern Europe, not to mention, I suppose, even now the war in Ukraine is a legacy of that time. It's, it's, I'm left feeling uneasy that, as you've just mentioned now, that it's kind of compressed to such a less significant role. Um, and I'm just, I wonder, yeah. I just, I like, it leaves me feeling that there's a missing element to the story, I suppose. Um, it, it's a really good question. Let me, let me try to think. Of course, I simplified a little bit too much by saying that, of course, the, the key role was to propel China to a global historical position that it has now. But, uh, Philip, actually, can you imagine, let's suppose that China becomes really, uh, at least as powerful as the United States, and maybe even more in the next 50 years. Wouldn't then really, and if you really accept that argument that they just made, wouldn't then really that be the story that somebody in 50 or 70 years from now would actually take from all this period? You know, it, it could be because that was really transformative. If you look at East European countries, uh, as I was saying before, we know that actually from empirical work that actually less developed countries benefited more from, from communism and actually more developed countries had a negative effect of communism. So I, I, we all take that and I think we generally agree because this is what the numbers give us. But in the global scheme of things in 70 years from now, really it would not matter that much. You know, these are small countries. It really doesn't matter to what happened to Eastern Europe. And what will matter to the world is what happened to China. But I do agree with you that there is a little bit of a, a lack of full maybe uh, recognition uh, or maybe even inclusion in the story of the role of the Russian Revolution, which I do agree with you was absolutely, I mean, it was a, a crucial development in the history of the world. It's just, I don't see that Russia was, uh, how should I say, of such importance globally that China now has and potentially would have. Mm, no, I, I, I think I, I get that. I mean, I guess that's where you end up if you try to resolve what you call the Marxists 1989 problem, which is, I guess, analogous to what you see as the liberals 1914 problems. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this conception and how you went about trying to resolve that, uh, that 1914 problem and that 1989 <laughs> problem. Because I think it's a cute way to put it, but um, it might be a bit opaque for someone who hasn't read the book. Yeah, and, and it may be similar to a simplification. 1914 problem, I really like the, uh, the question about 1914 problem because I think it's really a very important problem that is relevant for us today. And I'll explain why it is relevant for us today. Uh, 1914 problem is basically the following. You have globalization, which actually starts from 1868 and 70, and that globalization gradually, as we all know, includes greater and greater part of the world. There is developments even in, in India. There is now even sort of a story of developments in China, but obviously Europe, uh, Russia actually develops quite well with very high rate of growth. And also there is greater democratization. If you look at actually at all of, in, um, of most participants in World War I, they were democ democracies or quasi-democracies. US, UK, France, Germany, which had a parliament which was elected. The parliament did not have the power that normal parliaments do, but it was an elected parliament with freedom of the press and so forth. Austria, Hungary, Serbia, they were all democracies. And then you had the following problem. You have globalization, interdependence of trade, and democratization. And what is the result? 
the greatest war in history up to that point ever. So it is a problem. And you say, well, we would expect convergence. We would expect as uh, Norman Angel and actually even Bloch before him uh, talked about interdependence, which makes the wars uh, they, you know, impossible, meaning actually too costly so they would not be undertaken. And we do have a war. And why is it a problem? Because liberal theology or teleology rather, cannot really solve that problem because it should not have happened. And it is relevant for us today because we have exactly the same processes now. I will not repeat polarization and democratization as well. And we may end up in a nuclear war. So then you ask yourself a question, why is that logic, which seems really impeccable of interdependence, economic convergence and uh, uh, peace as a necessary tool to achieve that, why it doesn't work? So that's 1914 problem. And I think actually Lenin's and actually Hobson's approach before and then Lenin's and Rosa Luxemburg's makes lots of sense because essentially they said this is a competition between two different capitalisms and you can apply it to today as well. It's a mm -hmm. competition between Chinese capitalism and the American capitalism. And then the story fits extremely well. 1989 problem, however, is different because their Marxist story really has a problem that countries that were ostensibly socialist now go back to capitalism. And so for Marx, I mean, for Marxist thinking, it is really difficult to explain that because it is the same as I was saying that in the book, I think it's like feudalism suddenly, actually capitalist countries like, let's suppose France, suddenly decided to reintroduce the le premier état, le deuxième état, and le, le tiers état mm. uh, after the revolution. It's just sort of unthinkable. Yeah. So these are the two problems. But I think for us today, the 1914 problem is really a, of crucial importance. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could so, say that the, the, the third worldists were right, but for the wrong reasons, ultimately. I mean, to refer back to the point about the historic contribution of, of communism, um, that the, that revolution would be, uh, that could take place in the third world, but that it was only to, 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 to see through capitalism. I wanted to um, to talk more directly about the data on inequality that you've some of which you've already mentioned, Branka, with respect to um, the different role that communism played in different countries and how it was regressive in countries that were more developed, such as um, the Czech Republic and Hungary, and progressive in um, the more rural and backward countries. So one of the other tropes you pursued is um, tracking how inequality between nations changes alongside inequality within nations and how these two things interact. So I was just wondering if you could... Um, and there's some um, the debates about uh, the so-called elephant chart and and so on. I was just wondering if you could summarize, um, you know, what the data tells us at this particular point in time, and um, with respect to uh, where we are with inequality in the global in the global order. You know, I mean, let me go a little bit like uh, following actually the logic of your question. Uh, go back in history, and we have actually done quite a lot of historical excursion anyway so far, so let, let's continue. If you look at global inequality, and we have reasonably good data on the GDP per capita from 1800s, and we have kind of guesses, I think there will be few, in the future really greater improvements in those 
mean, the, the, those type of data. But we do have guesses or estimates of inequality in large countries from the 19th century. The important part is the following. If you track inequality from 1820, what you notice 19th century, all the way to World War I, is characterized by increasing global inequality, which is driven by two forces. First, countries become, uh, countries diverge because China and India do not grow and Western Europe and the US and later Japan really become rich. So the gaps become very large and they involve lots of people and you have an increase in between country inequality. Very important point. But secondly, there is an increase in within national inequalities. So you can call that period of a whole century, you can call it a period of basically imperialism because that was really externally how it was manifested and increased class, class struggle within the country. Then you come to the period which is difficult to actually uh, formalize because the, it's very short, there's a period in, inter, between the two wars. But then gradually what you do have a continuation of high inequality and a very high plateau. And that's the world of the three worlds in which I was born. When there was the first world, the second world, the third world, very clear differences in average incomes between the, all three of them and moderation in domestic inequalities. In socialist countries, inequality went down. And of course, in capitalist countries, it went down as well. In the UK, in France, in the Netherlands, in the US, actually, Kuznets was so impressed with the decline in US inequality between 1930s, when he got the first data, to 1950, that actually they, they argued at this speed, US inequality would be reduced almost to zero. Of course, zero is impossible. But the speed of reduction <laughs> was really enormous. There is a sentence from, from Kuznets where he says, well, well, like in 10 years, we'll almost have no inequality. Okay, and that period ends by 19, late 1980s, 1990. And there you have the third period, and we are now living that third period, where thanks to increase in income in China and India, we have a convergence in incomes between people and the creation of something that you might call middle class. At the same time, within national inequalities increase. So you, you notice that actually it, each period has its own specific features, which are both international and within national. And yeah. this is what the current period is. It's really uh, driven by the rise of Asia in terms of mean incomes and thereby convergence in incomes on average. But on the other hand, within country inequalities have increased. Phil, did you want to go on? Well, it was only to pick up this question about um, how far China can serve as a model. And we've touched upon it in terms of political capitalism. So, and it's something we've disagreed about on this podcast and um, that our listeners also have taken issue with us over. Um, and this question of how far China can serve as a model for development, um, for economic convergence, and I suppose also for reducing inequality elsewhere. And the reason I mention it is because I was very, I mean, so I'm interested to hear your view, but the reason I mention it is because I was very struck by the those images, that some of the really terrible images that came out of the US with from Kabul, where you had people clinging onto the undercarriages of the B-52s that were going into the air and falling out of the sky. Um, and it seemed to me like, you know, there would, it's in, I can't imagine a world in which it's ever conceivable that you would have similar kind, you know, that people would cling to the, un, risk their lives clinging to the undercarriages of um, bombers that were leaving your country in order to get into China. 
you know True. so that kind of that however impressive its economic um, transformation has been internally that simply the its political system its cultural kind of um, hegemony at the global level its openness or it's rather its closeness as a society means they will never be able to really rival the us in terms of the appeal as an overall kind of package for the world True. And actually, I mentioned that, you know, uh, that uh, uh, China has a problem. There is a whole section there about selling the Chinese uh, model. China has a double problem. The first problem that historically China was really never selling its model. So it was the, the seller was not there. And uh, they were, as you know, historically, they were very happy to have uh, uh, to be, a, you know, to have a tributary kingdoms around them. And basically, as you know, the, these kingdoms would essentially acquire the Chinese sort of uh, overlordship, but there will be nothing essentially that they would have to do except to visit China, give presents and trade. Uh, so China was not selling very much and continued not selling very much its model, neither under Maoist you know, history nor present. Well, then recently it actually had to start partly, I think, because it feels under the pressure, obviously, of the American model, which is much more universal because the values of, you know, uh, uh, democracy, uh, freedom to do what you want in terms of economic economic activities are universal. So they are not really uh, specific to a given civilization. So China, I think, had, I think, to, to start believing, trying to see how to package its own results and its own success. But secondly, the buyers are not also like many simply because of the problems of somewhat cultural, um, I would um, call it cultural uh, uh, aloofness. I think I actually had one uh, piece which was based on a book by, uh, by Martin Schack that I called it the, uh, the aloofness of uh, simply, you know, they took their position in the past as, as given, and they were really not uh, either developing the model very much or selling it, as I was saying before, and they were not sufficiently universal. Uh, that could be changing now, especially when we see Chinese influence in Africa, that is, of course, more important economically. And also, I think that actually other countries without discussing now Chinese civilization, they can take from China the importance of economic growth and delivery of improvement in prosperity and sort of de-emphasized part on democracy. So, mm. you know, that part is not unattractive. And I really don't want to mention here the names because people immediately sort of jump and say, like Orban, for example, you can actually see certain elements and even in Erdogan, uh, people don't actually know that income inequality, for example, in Turkey until the recent period. The recent period is very different. But he, Turkey had 15 years of fairly strong growth and the creation of a strong middle class. Yeah. And there are certain elements that you can say that Erdogan as well took from the Chinese experience. So you don't become Chinese by doing that, but you actually refocus the attention to economic growth and defocus the attention on democracy. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that uh, especially the way Phil framed <laughs> the question gave off what the divergence was between us on this question. And I mean, I was potentially envisaging 
that China could represent a sort of model or some sort of ideal, um, precisely because of another sort of convergence, um, a socio-political one, and one which is converging, I guess, downward in terms of the freedoms available, um, especially in the West. And I think if, uh, and as you recognize, you know, the US increasingly oligarchical and the degree of collective control offered to the ordinary citizen um, is diminishing. Um, and even in, at, at the level of kind of in more individual freedoms also diminished, that, you know, given these kind of increasingly similar choices in terms of the amount of freedoms available, in ter terms of the amount of democracy, that then uh, China's fast growth comes to represent something. Um, it's not exactly the shining city on a hill, but the better of the two alternatives. And I guess that's how I would see that scenario perhaps playing out. Um, but I wonder if you still would disagree with that with that vision. Now, I would agree. I mean, let me put it in a most general uh, way. My argument in the book, and generally, I think I've used it several times, was that for many people, there is a trade-off between rights or democratic rights and economic improvement. If you look at Rawls, Rawls has a sort of, uh, you know, in, in, um, a lexicographical ordering of liberties and you have uh, the first point is that actually you do not, there is no trade-off between political rights and economic growth. Actually, he says that explicitly, there is no trade-off. So we start with political rights and democracy. Then the next point is, I think the difference principle comes as number three point, but there is no trade-off. I think that actually for many people, there is a trade-off. And the trade-off then means that at some point you might actually sacrifice some of democratic freedoms for greater income. That's what I want to put in the most general sense. So you're not really now discussing the US, you're not discussing China, you're just saying whether that trade-off does exist or not. And I agree with what Phil's argument was. And actually we have to remember that the same thing happened in Sarko in 1975. So it's not only in Kabul, we have seen it before. And I talked about Cuba as well. But it's also true that if you take the situations now of the three countries, including Afghanistan, but I would also take Libya and Iraq, the so-called introduction of democracy there led to a total, I mean, Libya is in a total civil war. Mm. Actually, if you read a newspaper like two days ago, on the same day, we had an attack in the green zone in Iraq with 12 people who died and uh, significant clashes in Tripoli. So you have two counter examples there that the, there was an issue of the trade-off. Okay, let's push democratic sort of accountability to the forefront. What you end up, you end up with essentially breaking the countries and ending up in civil strife or ethnic conflict, or as you know, Libya is divided into two parts of the countries that are basically at war with each other. So that, that, in the most general sense, let me just sort of repeat that. I think that we have to acknowledge the existence of the trade-off. If we do acknowledge them, then we decide where on that trade-off we wish to be. Mm. No, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think part of that, the question of that trade-off depends also on the degree to which um, people seek self-rule, um, the, the, the extent to which people are willing to uh, take the public stage um, or, or whether they're content to see their private desires catered to through, through growth. 
Um, but but, I, I, well, may I just say here, that goes back to your previous point. If you have uh, so-called democratic systems where increasingly, and I think that's the case, uh, taking public stage becomes more costly in terms of your time, and the results of taking public stage are really irrelevant because the public stage is controlled by people who have money. Then you really look at a situation where actually that kind of activity is generally meaningless or of very small importance. And on the other hand, you can say what I really care is whether my children can go to school, whether I would have a job, mm. whether my streets would be clean, and whether it would be safe for me to go out. And that's where the trade-off comes. And yeah. that's what I was saying. Actually, we have to acknowledge that that for many people, uh, these four or five things that I mentioned, including school and streets and safety and all of that, are important. We cannot just say they're not important and they would rather have people shoot them in the street and have a say in local politics. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, I did want to ask, um, because you were mentioning a second ago about Africa and China's role there um, and the extent to which that might that China might provide a model. Um, do you think that we've in some way reached the end of modernization? Which is a rather big question. Um, oh. Or is there still another sort of twist in the tail? Um, and I mean this in the sense that, you know, the, the job, um, especially as you've described the role that communist parties have done in modernizing um, backwards countries, uh, most countries around the world are more or less complete in, in terms of transitioning into modern market economies. However, unequal, still backward in certain regards, corrupt and so on uh, that they are. Um, so is there still sort of more uh, more gas in the engine of, of modernization? Well, that's, I mean, a very difficult question. I would, I would actually try to, to skip it or to avoid it. I, I'm a big fan <laughs> of modernization. And I think we will, I mean, there are many parts of the world that, that need to be quote unquote modernized because modernization, I think, essentially to mean increased income and easier way to um, uh, fulfill all our material desires, you know, there was a conflict, you know, you might remember for chapter five of capitalism alone, the conflict between our ability to fulfill these material desires and the need to accept certain sort of a value system that then de-emphasizes or makes redundant or actually makes us forget other elements that are also very important, like family. I mentioned that, you know, before, or a life which is less driven by by monetary satisfaction or, or monetary gain. Uh, but I would take modernization really to be essentially I mean, defined in economic terms. And if you define it like that, there is still a long way to go because mm. if you look at the, you know, let me just say one number that I think many people find striking. Uh, in the West, of course, we are used to actually sort of seeing the middle class here as something normal. But the person with the middle class income of Western countries is at 91st global percenta. So that person that we think is like normal income that, you know, we can see that everybody should have is richer than 91% of the people in the world. And when you see that, then you can say, well, there is a lot of scope for other 91% of people to come to that posi mm -hmm. position that we find reasonable. 
you know, because that's what our experience tells us. But when you put that experience in numbers, when you look at the world, uh, the world is a pretty poor place. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I guess I'm fairly, um, unfortunately, not very op- optimistic about the possibilities of that, um, even though I think it's very desirable. And, and I wanted to ask earlier, actually, so I might as well take the opportunity now, what kind of possibilities you think are open, um, looking at the kind of contemporary conjuncture of, uh, for development in, in the poorer countries and middle income countries for that matter as well? You know, I, uh, as I said, I'm actually quite in favor of economic growth. And you probably know that I had debates there with people who are for uh, big growers. I, uh, I will not going to repeat them all now, but I believe that economic growth is absolutely indispensable for the improvement uh, in not only way of life of people, but actually uh, allowing people opportunities to uh, basically uh, self-realize you know, without economic growth and without income and without wealth, you really cannot Mm self-realize because you're so much constrained in your daily activity. You just go, it's practically survival. From day to day, you have to fight to survive. And what income gives us is a possibility to go a little bit beyond that and really realize our human potential. So that's where I'm disagreement with people who believe that we should not grow because I think that basically they take their own experience. They see that actually there are bad things about growth. I didn't. I don't deny that. I was talking about the the acceptance of the system of values, which I think is not ideal at all. And I'm talking also about climate change and many other issues. But I still believe that again, like in a trade-off, we are actually still, for most of the world, in the situation where economic growth is of of primary importance. And uh, one more point on that, because we talked about China before. I see China's role in Africa not only being positive directly, because you can question that, whether all the projects really made sense or not. Probably some of them did not make sense. But the fact that China got involved in Africa has led, as you know, more recently Biden and the US to also start proposing fairly similar uh, programs for Africa. Mm -hmm. So if you're an African country, this is good for you. You're going to play off China against the US and you will probably get more money it would go faster. So I think in that sense, the, the competition of the two superpowers is good for the countries that actually can play one superpower against the other. Hey there, this is the end of the free episode. If you've enjoyed it, make sure you follow the podcast and we're also on social media everywhere. You'll find us by searching BungaCast. And also drop us a review. We would be greatly appreciative if you would. In the second part of this episode, we continue our chat with Branko Milanovic. We discuss how inflation is likely to impact inequality and ask Branko what he means by the paleo-left as an ideological position and why we should adopt this perspective. And we also look forward to Branko's new book on the history of studies on inequality and find out why Marx and libertarians have more in common than we often might think. That's for subscribers only at patreon.com bungacast. We'd be delighted if you'd join us over there. For $5 a month, you get access to this, as well as two original exclusive episodes a month. See you there.